Uh, as, as, as Mike mentions, you saw in the video, you know, that there was, there was like, the original cut of that video had six and a half minutes worth of it. It was like trying to, there was so much that they had to say, we had to kind of keep paring it down. But there is so much life that happens in Rooted, as, as even as I was um, talking with um, our senior pastor, a guy named Kenton Bishore, Mariners Mission VA was one of four churches um, that are all linked together under the banner Mariners, and Kenton is, oversees all of those. And uh, we were talking about how, how Rooted has changed our church. And that over the course of the past couple years, as so many people have gone, thousands, multiple thousands of people have gone through Rooted um, as their initiation into sort of life groups and life of the church, um, how much it has changed people. That it is not a group where there's a teacher. We don't like hire an expert or have an expert that comes and just kind of tells you what to think and you just listen and take notes. And wow, 10 weeks of this is going to be awesome. I just listen to them and nod and take notes. It's not what it's about. It's a facilitated group. It means that there's someone who's been through it before, who's been trained to kind of facilitate conversation, that people, I've talked to numbers of people who have come through the Rooted Experience not knowing anything about Jesus, not knowing anything about church, but who were just like, look, I want to go and be in a community of people that talk about stuff that really matters, and so that's what that is, and people have found those things, that um, this is a group of people who are trying to figure out in some way, you know, all the bigger questions of life, and it is not a judgmental community, it's a, you know, so if, if you're like... I'm not sure about church, but I really want to know what Mariners is all about, and I'm curious about them, and I want to be in a place where I can ask some questions and not be judged for them, then Rooted is a great place for that. And it is a, it is a very, very rich, good experience. And um, you know, those are some of our college students, but that was like, it, you know, just to give you a sense, it is, it is, um, it's the thing that's reshaped other community of Mariners at all of our campuses. So if you're on the fence, just you've been so nudged now to try and consider what it might look like, all right? Um, as we, we're in the second week of a series called Neighbor Good, and uh, Doug Fields kicked us off last week if you were with us. And basically, if you were to kind of boil down all of Jesus' agenda for, you know, what, what he's about, uh, he would say, this is what we're about, loving God and loving other people. And that none of us, we'd say this too, none of us in this room has figured that all out perfectly. All of us have room to grow into that. And we're all a group of people in so many ways that are uh, trying to figure that out. We're in process. And, but this is what Jesus' agenda is for the whole world, that people who would follow him would love God and love other people. And that's it. That's the whole essence of when we talk about neighbor good. And I heard, you know, multiple stories of, of you guys you know, holding neighbor day events on Labor Day and all that kind of stuff and things that you're doing. And there's great stuff that people are taking on as part of this neighbor good series. And as we jump into the second week, why don't we do this? We'll pause and let's pray, and then um, we'll kind of let God speak to us um, today out of Luke chapter 10. So let's, let's pray and we'll get into it. Jesus, we are so grateful that you would call us neighbor to you. May you look at us and a group of people who do not have everything figured out, who have um, who have done lots of things that would keep us to be other than your neighbor, and yet you come to us and say, I want to be with you. I want to be next to you. I'm excited to be near you. It is good for us to be together. So, Father, regardless of whatever we might have been in this past week or these past few weeks or months or years in our life, that whatever would, um, whatever would sort of capture your love for us today, would that be made known to us in a very real way? That you desire to be close with us, that you desire intimacy with us. Father, we ask that uh, for just a moment, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us in a moment of stillness as the pace of life is picking up and already the anxiety of what's ahead is beginning to sort of weigh on us. We just ask for a moment as we pause that you would speak to us in the stillness that we might hear from you, Jesus.
Father, today would you speak to us in so many different ways that you might do it, that we might hear from you, and that we might have a better, clearer, fuller, richer picture of your love for us. In your name, amen. Um, if you want to follow along with us, and you brought your own Bible, we'll be mostly in Luke 10. If you borrowed our, our, you know, our Bibles, we're in Luke 10. If you just want to follow along in the outline, great. Uh, or if you just want to look on the screen, or if you, you, know, you have your own little micro screen on a computer, or I mean an iPhone or something like that, you want to follow along, great. We're in Luke 10. Um, but before we kind of get into that, let me, um, let me ask you, there's basically, I've realized there's, there's basically two divisions of people in the world. And they're divided along some pretty, like, heated lines. And they are these people. Okay, I'll ask you to raise your hands to identify yourself as one of the members of these two groups of people. Uh, how many of you would say, with a strong level of conviction, even if it's, by the way, I should say, if you don't have a, an answer, you're a coward. Okay, I just want to tell you right now. If you're like, I don't have an answer, you're just, you have to choose now, okay? Choose sides. Okay, here we go. How many of you would say, I am, with strong conviction or even a little bit of conviction, I'm a cat person? Raise your hand. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, there's not a whole lot. There's a little bit of nervousness about that. Clap. Don't clap. <laughs> How many of you guys would say, forced to choose or with powerful conviction, you are a dog person? Yeah. My people, right? <laughs> now, there are... now. I realize that there are, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about this. We have, we have a dog in our house, you know, that we've had a dog for about two years. But, um, you know, the dog people think of the cat people. I mean, like when a dog person talks to cat people and how much they love their cats, we just want to tell you, we all look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> uh, the cat's just there for me and just comes up and rubs up against my leg and then walks away. Your cat looks at you like, why do you live in my house? That's it. I mean, cats are like so offended that you're there. They're like, oh, you can pet me, but then just leave me alone. I'm sleeping. And, you know, whatever they do, you know, what's up with that? And cat people look at dog people and go, how can you tolerate such a slobbery mass of an animal that just comes up to your face and just, you know, like, how do you like, how do you, dog people are, okay, cat people, you're wrong about that. But I just want you to know, I understand that there are divisions, but people look at each other and go, cat people are crazy because you're not dog people. And dog people look at cat people and go, Cat people, I'm oh, sorry, however I got that backwards, whatever. Each of the other person looks at the other and goes, you're crazy because you're not one of us, right? And we look at the world in so many ways, we go, we ask the question, some of you guys who are new here are like, I walked in here and thought, I want to know if this is where I can hang out. Like, is this, are they us? Am I, are we one of them? Do we fit in here or do we not? Is this a place where I could go, this is, we kind of share something in common, or are they not one of us? And cat and dog people becomes the easiest way to kind of divide it. Are they cat people, are they dog people, because I'm a cat person, or dog, whatever it is. You're kind of looking around going, am I one of them or not? Do they want me to be with them or do they not? Now, in the ancient world, the simplest way to describe that division, there's probably other ways to do it, but the simplest way to describe that kind of division is in two words. Sacred and profane. Sacred things, anything sacred is a a thing, a person, or a place that is otherwise holy. I mean, it's just a good way to say it. It's just holy. And the profane things are any things or people or places that ruin holy things. That's just kind of the way the world is divided. So there are holy people and holy places and holy things, and there are profane things and and profane people and profane places. And never ever in the world of the ancient world is it something, is there, is there ever a time, at least in the popular understanding at the time of Jesus, that something holy could make something profane more holy or less profane? 
In other words, that the best sort of analogy to kind of think of it is sort of like this. Imagine that if you were to, uh, you're carrying a tray of food or something like that, and you happen to drop it in the gutter. And while part of it kind of fell into the gutter, you, you know, you wouldn't kind of put it back on the plate and go, well, don't worry, this plate was really clean, the food was really clean, so therefore the, whatever's in the gutter then got clean. That's the, that's the natural analogy. Always the understanding is that sacred and holy things are ruined by profane things, not that profane things are made less profane or more holy by the encounter of holy things. That's the general understanding of the world at the time of Jesus. Now, when Jesus has a conversation with people, it's always around this, there's always this sort of undercurrent of this kind of idea about the world. Sacred and profane. Is, what is Jesus' deal with those kinds of things? And he has this conversation famously, as we talk about neighbors, in, in Luke chapter 10, in which this whole idea begins to surface as a part of sort of the undercurrent of what's talking about. So here we go. In Luke chapter 10, here's we'll check this out. Verse 25 says this. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let me tell you a couple things here. There's a lot in this, even in that sentence. Let me just tell you really quickly. First, the expert in the law, some translations have the word uh, lawyer. The word test is sometimes translated as the word tempt. But the word for this expert in the law is a single Greek word. It's the word nomikos, which means... It's a person, nomos means law. So you have this person who is an expert in the law, and it's only used in the book of Luke when there's a confrontation with Jesus. So it's not like there's a nomikos, he's a wonderful person walking his dog across the street. They never have that, because, you know, wonderful people are dog people. That's, we know that, right? But you don't have that. There's just, the only time you have this word used is when there's a confrontation with Jesus that's right around the corner. So you have this person who's about to have this conversation with Jesus, and he asks the question of Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you grew up in the church, or I started going to church when I was like in junior high, the way I had always heard this taught, and the way I, have always, I had always understood it, was that this meant that he was essentially asking the question, hey Jesus, how do I go to heaven when I die? Well, that's not what he's asking. There is a belief about God that he's going to have this time Oftentimes you see it in the Bible written in this phrase, on that day, that there's going to be this time when God redeems all of his people. There's going to be this giant sort of celebration and his kingdom life will begin on the earth and everybody will know about it. And all of the good, awesome, wonderful, righteous people will share in it. And what he's asking is, Jesus, who gets to share in that kind of kingdom life that begins when God's day sort of starts and goes on forever and ever? Who gets to share in that kind of kingdom life? That's what he's asking. Now, uh, he's asking in a sense, who gets to join God in his work now and forever in the world? And everybody knew the answer to that question. Everybody in the ancient world, every, every Jewish person would know the answer to that question. Who gets to join God in his work and his kingdom work forever and ever? The answer would always be righteous people, the sacred people, the people who belong to that sort of holy belonging with God kind of stuff. Those people get to join God in that work. So, uh, sort of continuing on, here's what, what Jesus, how Jesus answers them. This is, of course, Jesus answers in a question, which is very sort of rabbinical teaching style of him. He says in verse 26, what is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He, meaning the lawyer, the nomikos, answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength uh, and, and, and with all your mind. Now, that's Deuteronomy 6, 5. Then he says this, love your neighbor as yourself, which is Leviticus 
1918. Now this is a pretty commonly held belief. There's basically two schools of thought dominant at that time. This is one of the most dominant schools of thought. People are like, yeah, pretty much the Bible's about loving God and loving other people. Everything else is kind of commentary. That's all we need. That's it, right? And this is, it's a pretty dominantly held belief. Now everybody kind of goes, nothing controversial about that whatsoever. Everything in this is a pretty simple thing. Now, I should tell you this. It's part of being a dog person. We've had our dog for two years. And I remember I did this exactly, every parent who's ever bought, do, like bought a dog or adopted a dog or whatever, you know, and told their, you know, their kids, of course, want a dog. And you have the whole conversation, which is, that goes like this. First of all, the parents have a conversation that looks like this. I'm not the kids. It's the kid's dog, and they're doing everything with that dog. It's their dog. I'm not doing anything. And we all stack hands. Me and Amanda are like, yeah, special handshake of our family, whatever that is. And we all, we're like, we're on the same page. And then we have the speech to our kids. You guys, understand, here's what having a dog means. Because we will not have a dog unless all of you guys agree to these terms. Which is this. You have to feed a dog. They're like, I could do that. Said my, you know, two, six, and eight-year-old at the time, or whatever old they were, two, four, and six-year-old. They're like, we got that. We can totally do that. Um, you will need to, uh, to walk the dog. My oldest is like, I got a skateboard. He can drag me around. No big deal. Like, what's the problem with that? Okay. And then I go, then you're going to have to pick up after the dog. And they're like, what, what does that mean? Okay, just to pause for a second. Jesus is having a conversation here in which he's inviting, the, he's, you know, he's having this conversation with this guy. And frequently when Jesus has a conversation with anybody, he's talking about what it looks like to participate with him in his kingdom project in the world. And generally there's times where there's like lots of people around Jesus who are like, you are awesome, Jesus. We love what you're saying. And he keeps saying to them, are you guys sure you want this? Because there are things you have to do as part of being connected to me that are pretty important to me. And they're hard, and they're uncomfortable, and they're not always easy. And so the crowds would often show up in big masses and then disperse. Now, I'm talking to my kids. You guys have to pick up after the dog. And they look at me like, <laughs> what's, what's that mean? I'm like, well, you get this special mitten they give you at Target when you check out. It's like a bag. And then you just grab, the, and they're like, they know that their dad's kind of sarcastic, so they're like, what? I'm like, then you pick it up, and then you just reverse grab the thing, and then you tie it off in a little bow, and then you just carry it around like it's normal to carry around fecal matter when you're walking your dog. Hi, I'm walking around. It's totally normal, right? We just walk around here. <laughs> yes, I don't mind this. Hey, everybody's shaking people's hands. Everybody's cool with it. That's just how you kind of operate. Again, cat people are like, see, we win, okay? <laughs> and my kids are looking at me like, that's the deal? I'm like, that's the deal. And you got to do it in the backyard, and you got to pick. I mean, this is, the, you know, this is what we're talking about. And they're kind of having second thoughts. Now, Jesus is explaining to this guy, as he asks the question, what do I got to do to inherit this sort of kingdom kind of life? And he says, well, how do you read these commandments? And here's what he says. And so he gives him these commandments. And then the guy says this, because he said nothing. Jesus has said nothing controversial yet. And then he gets to verse 29, because there's something going on here, which the guy says this. But... He wanted to justify himself. Meaning there's something about the guy which says, when you said this is what it's about, or actually, because it's by his own words, as he's quoting the Bible, this is what it's about, there's still something in his own mind, there's still something going on in his own heart about which he says, I have a little bit of an agenda. 
There's something I'd like to kind of wrestle with. I just want to make sure I get that all sort of, there's, I have a question about that. There's a hidden agenda this guy's trying to work out for himself as he's speaking with Jesus. So again, verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus this question, and who is my neighbor? In the ancient world, particularly in the first century in this part of the world, the neighbor, the answer everybody always expected is this answer. It would be a righteous Jew from a good family in a good place. A neighbor is that person. In other words, that the people who are my neighbor are the people who are kind of like me. People who do stuff like me, they're similar in all, in so many respects to me, and they have a good reputation, and in so many ways, they make me look good because I'm associated with them. But Jesus had a reputation for hanging out with people who were notoriously unrighteous, who made him look bad just by the nature of his association with them. And so this guy, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? Verse 30. In reply, Jesus told him a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this is probably the most famous neighbor story in the Bible. You, if you, even if you're, not, if you're like new to church, you might have heard of this story, which we're about to talk about in a second. So Jesus is telling the story. There's a guy, he's going down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho called the Jericho Road. Jericho Road is also known by another name, which is the Path of Blood. This is a place where robbers frequently mug people, attack them, kill them, take what they need. And the people who make this walk are people who are walking back and forth from the temple for worship. Now, I want you to underline, if you have your own Bible, you can even underline our Bibles, one of those blue ones if you grab one in the back and you like to, or on your outline, whatever. But if you can highlight it digitally in your iPhone, whatever, do it. I want you to highlight this phrase, half dead. Half dead. We'll get to that in a second, but I want you to underline or highlight or whatever it is that you need to do to identify that as half dead. It's a 17-mile stretch of road. This guy's left for dead. There he's half dead, and there he is. And then you have this, verse 31 and 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The priests and the Levites have particularly... sort of sacred responsibilities in the most sacred place, which is the temple. And they're on their way, either back and forth, presumably on the way, to the temple to conduct their very sacred, holy responsibilities at that temple. Now, typically, when you, when you, when you get this pick, when you understand what this is happening, typically you understand the story, the way it's always taught is, bad priest, bad Levite. And there is something that's kind of, there's something to that, I guess, a little bit, I suppose. Because it does say that he passed on the other side of the Jericho Road. Now, we, we don't really have an understanding, most of us don't, unless you've actually been there. You don't know how big the Jericho Road is. I mean, is it as big as, like, the Five Freeway? Is it Crown Valley Parkway crossing on the other side of the road? I mean, what does that look like? Let me just give you a sense of what that looks like. Here's a picture of the Jericho Road. It's narrower than the aisles in our, in our worship center. That means that the people are walking, and to cross all the way to the other side, they like, on the other side of the road, right there. That's it. Priest and Levite, oh man, there's someone who's half dead. Other side of the road. 
it's not like they were just, I mean, it's not like this massive avoidance thing. You can, I mean, you can tell there's, there's, a, there's just enough room for like a donkey and a couple people, and some people aren't even on the path. They're up kind of on the side. That's the Jericho Road. Now, like I said, typically this is seen as bad priest, bad Levite. How dare they? How dare they do this? But there's a dilemma underneath this whole thing that you don't really cap, you don't know unless you're kind of really aware of some stuff. And they're walking to the temple to serve there, which is their sacred duty. And I want you to see this, why they, why, another reason why they might not have helped. It's in the book of Numbers, verse 19, or I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 11. I'll just show you on the screen. I'll read it really quickly. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they'll be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they, they, will not be, they will not be clean. They fail to purify themselves. After touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. Now this is before, this is talking about the tabernacle, this is before there was an actual solid temple. So they just had a, a big giant worship tent, essentially. And so this is talking about people who are going to do some work there. They defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel. Meaning, you are totally removed from being with other people because it's so heinous that you would actually touch a human corpse because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them they're unclean and their uncleanness remains on them now you understand here it means then that something that is unclean an object that is profane makes something otherwise holy a person now profane unless there's this elaborate ritual i mean even if you read on and on there's like taking special branches and sprinkling of hyssop branch and spring i mean it's like crazy the amount of stuff you have to do to get right again that is to say, then, that a profane thing makes something that's otherwise holy profane. Keep, keep reading. Verse 14. This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. And every open container without a lid fastened on it will be unclean. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. Skipping down to verse 20. But if those, but if those, uh, sorry, but if those who are unclean do not purify themselves, they must be cut off from the community because they have defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them and they are unclean. Now, these two guys are walking to perform the most sacred responsibilities. The Levites are the ones who are responsible for cleaning the temple and preparing it for worship. And the priests are the ones who stand between God and the people and help them to make the sacrifices they need to make. They represent a huge amount of people and a huge amount, particularly, I guess you could say this way, in terms of ministry. They represent a huge amount of ministry. And what they're reading here is, I don't know whether, this is Jesus' brilliant storytelling, I don't know whether he's alive or he's dead. He's half dead. So when people hear this story as it's being told, read in the Bible, as you, as you hear what's happening here, there's this sense then that's like, well, I'm not sure they're all that bad. They have some jobs to do and nobody would blame them for walking past someone who's otherwise dead. That It's not really identifiable whether they're half alive. Are they more dead than alive? Or how do you, what is the, so they don't touch them. They actually have this act of obedience kind of dilemma there. Verse 33. But a Samaritan. Leave that on the screen for just a second. Now, 
like I said, there's basically two categories of things. There's sacred and profane, but I, that's not exactly accurate. There's, a, there's actually sort of like gradations of sacredness. And the way to think about it is that's like sort of radiating out from the center. If there's a deep center to all that is sacred, it's the holy of holies in the temple. And the person associated, and there's, there's holy objects in there. And what's associated with that holy object and that holy place is the high priest who goes in there once a year. And then radiating out from the interior sort of inner sanctum of the temple, then there's other sort of chambers, and there are priests. And then there are, just radiating out, there are priests, and there are righteous um, Jews. And then there are, um, I should say, righteous Jewish males. And then there are um, converts to Judaism who are also um, males who have undergone the rite of circumcision. We're radiating out in terms of decreasing levels of holiness. Then you have women uh, women who are Jews. Then you have uh, people who have, who have converted Judaism but have not undergone the rite of, cir- the rite of circumcision. Then you have people that are, um, uh, then you have people that are non-Jews, which are called Gentiles. And those people, that's like the Romans and everybody else, these are people who are generally referred to as dogs. Then you have people with all kinds of physical, clear physical maladies that have aff- afflicted them, you know, of, of all degrees. And beyond them, the people that are the most removed, that are the least most, we now entered into like the outer territories of the most shameful, profane people at the most outer rim, beyond the outer limits, is a group of people called the Samaritans. That their very presence among you makes anybody who would otherwise be righteous or good or holy or sacred, it makes them profane. Here's why. Hundreds of years before Jesus. There are, at 722, the Assyrians invade, and at 586 BC, there's 722 BC and 586 BC, you have two Babylonians invade. And you have these two groups of people who come in. And the Samaritans are the people, while everybody else is being kicked out of their house and home, while the temple is being disgraced, while the people are being sort of disbanded, the Samaritans say, you know what, these invaders, let's just marry them. Let's just kind of settle down with them. And the Jews say, how dare you? These people kicked us out of our own homes. These people have conquered our people. They have defiled our temple. And you Samaritans are saying, let's settle down with these people and kind of form a little family. How dare you? You've destroyed the covenant community of people you know, together. You're traitorous and you're evil. There is no one worse than you. You are the farthest out there, most profane thing we could ever possibly imagine. How dare you? There's a a phrase in the first century, um, right around the time of Jesus, there's this this phrase that goes like this. He that eats the bread of a Samaritan is like one who eats the flesh of the swine. Now, you guys know that the the, the prohibited food is, of course, the most prohibited food would be the pork, pig. What's being, bread is not prohibited, but listen, listen to the subtlety here. The fact that bread would be prepared by a Samaritan has poisoned it to the degree that it's, you might as well just go eat pork. You might as well go eat pig. You might as well go eat the swine. It is so, they have so ruined it that it would ruin it for you. It would make you unholy. It would profane you. But there's no love lost between the two. The Samaritans in AD 12, so the year 12, they go in during Passover, and they notoriously sprinkle the bones of the dead in the inner sanctum of the temple, rendering it defiled for worship during Passover. 
So these two groups of people could not be more on opposite ends of each other, and they could not be more hate, hate they could not feel more hatred towards each other. And Jesus is about, he's saying to this guy who's asking, who's my neighbor? He's telling him the story, and he gets to the part where he gets to the, how these two guys on the te- walk in the temple, they avoid, whatever, and he gets to this other part where he says, not just a Samaritan, but he says, but a Samaritan. Because the response of people who would have heard this story Hearing that a Samaritan walked by, the only thing they could have expected would have been that the Samaritan would have probably kicked rocks in the guy's eyes, searched for a few more items to take, done something else to defile this person or do whatever else it would have been. But Jesus says the word, but a Samaritan. Again, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. The word took pity on him is one word in Greek. It's the same word that's word you use for compassion. And it's a word, as we, look in the, um, as we look at sort of the way in which the, um, the ancient world understood emotion, they didn't understand emotion as coming out. The brain was sort of a useless organ. They didn't really know what it was for. They thought that the seat of all emotion and pity and everything else came from the stomach. And the way that that word's actually written is, he felt it in his gut. That's the way the word compassion is actually written. So somewhere in the core of his being, this traitorous evil Samaritan looks at a man and feels in his own gut the core of his being a kind of mercy or pity upon this guy. Now remember, Samaritans have the same Bible. They're working with the same first five books of the, of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, which prohibits the touching of someone who is a dead person or a half-dead person for that matter. And here's what he does. Verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Now, just to give you an idea of what that actually looks like. Because, you know, for us, it's not, we don't really have a good context for what that looks like. And I don't even know if this is the best example. It's probably not the best, but it just, at least it'll kind of give it a little bit more light. Imagine in probably, you know, early 50s, 60s, rural Alabama, the, the grandson or the son of the grand wizard of the KKK in that particular area is driving his father's truck with all the Confederate flags and everything else on the truck. And he sees a young black man injured on the side of the road. And then feeling it in his own guts, moved, by, moved to pity in his own heart, he pulls his truck over and he scoops up this man, placing him in the truck. You have to imagine the confusion that must be happening there. What is this person with all the symbols of hate and evil that are on their truck, picking this person up who is the victim of that hate and placing him in the truck? Well, that's just the target of that hate. What questions are being raised right there? Why is he touching that person? Imagine that this person then has to drive his truck through the parts of town where that guy lives, the wounded guy lives, and deal with all the questions and the people looking at him and all that kind of stuff. Why is that person in the car? Well, should we, should we throw a rod? Do we stop him? Do we try to rescue him? Is there some capture? What's happening here? And then imagine he pulls to the hospital and he removes this man and carrying him into the ER, waits in, with, in the triage room, waits for him until he gets admitted. And then he gets taken to the back room, and they, and they say, well, we're going to admit him. And he says, well, here's $1,000. Make sure he gets whatever he needs. 
And if there's any more that this person might need, you let me know, because I'm going to come back through here in a couple days, and I'll pay that too. Now imagine all of the questions and all of the hate and all of the confusion that went on in that scenario. That's about as good of an equivalent as I could think about it for us to consider. That's what's happening. The way that we feel about someone who operates that kind of racism and evil is the person being the helper here. That's just not how in the, that's, they don't do that. Jesus redirects this question back to the man. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, he's asking this guy. Now remember, by the way, I should say this. What, what's the original question? It's not, who is my neighbor? The original question being asked by this guy isn't who is my neighbor. The original question is, how do I share in and participate in the life with God in his kingdom work? Who, how do I get to be a part of that work? And Jesus tells him, well, you know, you love God and you love other people and you, you, that's kind of what we're about here. And then he says, well, looking to justify himself, then he asks this question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks him back, well, who acted like the neighbor? Who was a neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robbers? What this guy's actually asking is, where can my being a neighbor stop? Where can I say, hey, you know, I've been neighborly enough. I think we're good. We've reached the end, the reasonable limits of neighborliness. How far does it really have to go? How, where's the lid? Where can it stop? I don't have to love everybody like a neighbor, do I? I mean, as we get to the rest of the series, you're going to see this pan out a little bit more, but let's be reasonable, right? I mean, who, I mean, there's some people who are just beyond neighborliness, right? Jesus says, who acted like a neighbor? Now, I want you to notice this answer. Notice what he doesn't say, verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now, the answer to that question is an article and one other word, the something. That's the answer. But he can't even say it. The Samaritan, but he doesn't say it. The one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to say the words. Because in his own mind, the one person who would never, ever, ever be capable of any kind of, I mean, Jesus is doing this kind of going, do you get where this neighborliness is going? And to get, make the point, I'm using the person that you already hate the most to make this point about neighborliness. And he can't even bring himself to say it. It would be like asking, who was the neighbor in the story with the KKK guy? Well, that was the, was this raging, violent, racist person was the neighbor. I mean, it's like that same level of, are you serious? You're using this as an example? The way that you feel. I mean, that's this is crazy. Then Jesus hits him over the head with his hammer. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and be like this person which is, such, which is the target of your own hatred. The one who you can't believe is capable of any righteousness. The one who is the most profane. I want you to be like that guy. Whoa. Are you serious? 
That means that the neighbors, what you're saying, Jesus, is that the neighborliness really doesn't know any limits. Life in the kingdom that Jesus is about, participation in his kingdom, is this kind of stuff. Now, this is what I said. Remember, crowds of people gather around Jesus, and they're like, we love what you're saying, Jesus. And then he says stuff like this, and they're like, ah, nah, you know, not so much. Really? Love it. I mean, there's really no, there's no limit to who I'm supposed to kind of, I mean, I, <laughs> you know, there's got to be another teacher around here somewhere. I mean, that's kind of the reaction. Not too long ago, I was, um, my, um, we're, like I told you, I live on an alley. Some of you have heard me say this before. I live on an alley where all these garages face each other, and we all kind of hang out together. And um, occasionally, which it's supposed, technically it's a fire lane. There's no red curbs there, but it's technically a fire lane. And so occasionally, people will park their cars out in front of the alleys, and everybody knows whose car is who, and we all kind of, you know, we just kind of, you know, we park in front of the garage, and everybody knows. And one time, Amanda comes home, and there's a power outage. She can't pull the car all the way into the garage. This is a couple years ago. She can't pull the car all the way into the garage because she can't open the garage. My now five-year-old, you know, turned, he turned five last week, but my now five-year-old was then like, you know, two, and so he's asleep in the car. So she has to park the car outside, take him out of his car seat, which this is, this is the most magical parenting thing. If you can ever transfer, with the, how do they transfer? It's just when parents, your parents ask that, that's how do you get a sleeping child who's asleep in a car to be asleep somewhere else? Transfer. So she's working to try and make this transfer happen takes Scotty inside and kind of lays him down. He kind of wakes up. She's trying to get him to be calm. And again, power outage. There's also groceries in the car, so she can't leave him out in the car. So, you know, this whole deal, this whole math problem of who, ta- you know, there's a boat and there's two men and a river. And how do you get, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So she's trying to solve that problem. She puts Scotty down. And then, then um, she goes outside and there's a ticket on our car. And so, of course, Amanda calls the city and says, hey, you know, there's a power outage. I couldn't put my car in the garage. I had a two-year-old in the back of the car. I can't leave him there. And so there's, I'm, I was stuck there, and I had to go back and forth to get groceries. And, of course, they said, we're Irvine. <laughs> we don't care. And, then, you know, it's like, okay, so we paid this parking ticket. Well, one of my buddies, who's all, he's, he works with our college students at the Irvine campus, he lives on our street. And I said, Tim, you know, did you get a ticket? He goes, I got a ticket, too. And I go, well, what happened? He goes, I actually, he goes, I called the, the Irvine Police Department. I go, you did? And he goes, yeah, the guys, they, they actually told me what happened. And I go, what happened? Because, I mean, like, I mean, I know that some of you guys are, like, firefighters in here. And, like, you know, I know you're looking at me like, shame. How dare you park in your alley? It's a fire lane. Shame. I don't need your emails. Just, okay, I feel bad. Okay. So uh, he, calls the fire, or he calls the police department and says, hey, what's, what happened? And they, they literally told him, well, you know, I can't tell you who, but you have a bitter neighbor. Oh, Really? And evidently, that person got a ticket for, like, blocking a, you know, a fire hydrant or something like that. And then they said, if I'm getting a ticket, everybody's getting a ticket. Now, that didn't help them reduce their ticket. It didn't help them fight their ticket in court. It just made everybody, it ruined everybody else's day. You know what I mean? Now, is there a limit on how much the neighborly love is supposed to go around Because I'm telling you, I'm telling my kids, when you walk the dog, if you happen to drop the bag that you're carrying around at that person's house. I'm not saying anything about it. Just, you know, now I know what to do with my dog turds. Just fling them right over there, you know, like right over there. (laughs) The question this guy is asking is, what's the upper end limit on who gets to be treated like a neighbor? 
And the, the example Jesus uses in brilliance is to take the most hated person and say, let me give you an example of how this person can be loved, which means that that person then, the furthest one out there, is worthy of being treated like a neighbor. Last week we started the series, Doug talked. And I told you guys in the compass I wrote how convicted I was by some of what he said about being a neighbor, not to people who are next door to your front door, but sort of next door to your own bedroom door, who live in your own house. And I thought, man, you know, as I was thinking about even this message going forward is, where's the limit to the people I treat like a neighbor? Chances are, well, it's not chances, the, the reality is that people who live in your own house, who lived in your own house, have treated you poorly. You have been not treated well by them as a neighbor who lived in your own house. People who are outside of your own house have treated you poorly. And you have done the same. Back and forth. We've been wounded by family members. We've made bad choices. We've been wounded and hurt by them. And the question Jesus is asking for us, where do you want it to stop? Who doesn't get to be neighborly with you? Or do you want to put a lid on it? In a moment, we're going to take communion. And this is something that the church has practiced among believers for, you know, centuries. As we look at communion, Jesus has gathered his disciples together. And essentially what he's doing is this. Jesus is on his own walk, even as we talk in Luke chapter 10. He's making his way to Jerusalem. And he looks at the people who are in the world, there's people who are following him, he looks at the, the whole world and he goes, these are people who are half dead. And I will take upon myself whatever it is that they need to be brought back to life. To full and rich and whole life. So in one sense, Jesus is, and this is, you know, bear with me, in one sense, Jesus is the great Samaritan who says, I look at people, we're half dead and I take upon myself everything that would keep them from full life I bear it upon the cross that anything that would separate them from God is upon me and I put it to death I will take it on myself that they might have life Jesus like a Samaritan was abandoned forgotten and put to death and so we celebrate communion to remember that sacrifice for us that we might have life on the night Jesus was betrayed he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. The great Samaritan, the one who would love, who would bear the cost upon himself. So here's how it will work. We're going to pray in a moment, but then what we'll do is this. I'm going to ask you to come forward. There'll be some folks up here that will be holding the elements of communion. And you just, they'll, they'll hold the bread and they'll say, this is the body of Christ given for you. And you take a piece of the bread and you dip it into the cup and that person will say, this is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can eat it right there. You can take it back to your seat. You can stop for a moment. You can pause. I saw some families kind of huddling up together praying last service. If you want to take communion, then write some prayer. Maybe you want to hit the prayer wall first, writing some confession. Whatever it is that you need to do, but this will be our time to respond to God and remembering him and his sacrifice for us that we might have life. And then we'll respond together as a group. And here's the deal. You know, as you take communion, 
please don't just take it and then walk out the door. Please make this part of the, there's a reason why it's called communion. Sometimes it's called the common table. It's because it's shared by the people together. Please don't make it a to-go communion. And then if there's some of you in here who have, you know, needs it's too difficult to come forward, you have some mobility issues or something like that, our ushers will move backwards to the room, and if you just need someone to serve you communion, just raise your hand, and they'd love to serve you. Bless this. Let's pray together, and then we'll take communion as a family together. Father, we are, um, we are people who have been wounded by those who should have been neighborly to us, and we're people who have done wounding to those to whom we should have been neighbors to. Father, for some of us, we feel great separation from you. There's a part of us that is overwhelmed in guilt and in sadness or in shame, and Father, we know that it is not your desire that we'd be separated from you. And so, for those of us in that situation, feeling as though we've been, we've wandered away and sitting in shame, Father, would you just come around us right now? Would you remind us in the deepest core of our heart that you desire to be with us and not to be separated from us and that your death on the cross enables that to be a full reality, that we can walk with boldness into your throne room. So Jesus, we take communion remembering you that you would willingly take on all of what would keep us from you, all of the debt, all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of that sin which keeps us from intimacy with you, with you Father. And we remember it today in communion with each other at the common table, the Lord's Supper. So Jesus, as we sing, as we take communion, and as we respond, maybe perhaps in even writing prayers and placing them in the prayer wall, being prayed for by other people, that you would be made known to us as our great neighbor. It is in your name, Father, that we pray. Amen.